When the infinite, omniscient God gives to us his word, it is an act of condescension. When God accommodates his language so that we finite creatures as we are might know something of who he is, something of his work, and you and I are never to forget that that is an act of condescension. He is coming down to us in the words of John Calvin and speaking to us as though we were babies, communicating to us according to our own babbling. The omniscient accommodating himself to our darkened, finite minds. A friend, the Psalter not only comes to us and comes to us as an act of condescension to help our minds, but it also comes to us accommodating itself to our own condition of heart. You see, the the Psalter is not only the very words that you and I are to bring to God in solemn praise, but but they they are themselves so often so many guides to lead our hearts in the act of worship. Because we need that too. It's not just that our minds are dull, but friend, our hearts are cold. And the Psalter, like as we have in our Psalter, in our, in our Psalm this evening, does that very thing. It leads us to think warmly about the praise of our God. And it's our obligation that as we sit under this tutoring, as we find the Word of God accommodates itself even to our own cold and slow hearts, that, that we would be warmed to this work of praise. It is the praise of our God that is the principal theme of this psalm. And we know that, of course, from the very first line. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And, and you'll notice that, as we said before, the, the Psalter often, in one psalm after another, begins as it ends. And that happens quite literally here in verse 9. It's the repeated first line of the psalm. This is really, of course, a psalm of praise. Not principally a psalm of petition or lament. It is, it is a psalm that is devoted primarily to, to extol the name of our God. But, but also you remember, friend, as we've just said, this is one of those psalms that is supposed to lead our hearts in the work as well. Because what you find in here are two different kinds of meditation. In verses 1 and 2, you have the first meditation that forms something like a paradox. He says there that the Lord God, he has his glory set in the heavens, and yet, in verse 2, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength. Or as it is in the translation in Matthew's gospel, thou hast ordained, ordained praise. You see the contrast. God's glory is set in the heavens, and yet he has ordained the mouths of babes and sucklings to extol his name. That's the first paradox, seeming paradox. The second one you find starting there in verse 3. There you have man described in his smallness. And yet, says the psalmist, he has been crowned with glory and honor. What is all of this about? Well, friend, what you see here is the psalmist is meditating on these apparent paradoxes. The glory of our God, but revealed through babes and sucklings. The smallness of man, and yet crowned with glory and honor. All of these things, says the psalmist, show us that God's name indeed is excellent in all of the earth. In other words, as he makes these meditations, he recognizes he is using the earth as a theater 
Again, to quote John Calvin, a theater of God's glory. He sees in God's works of providence, as here so described, the glory of his God. And this induces praise. I want you to go just a step further, though, with me this evening. And that is to ask, who are the principal figures that the psalmist is meditating upon? Who are, in other words, the babes and the sucklings of verse 2? And even more specifically, who, is, who are those in view from verses 3 to 8? Well, friend, the text of Scripture is quite clear. He describes man as babes and sucklings, but you notice that that is said in direct contrast to those who are God's enemies. Again, at the second verse, these ones God has ordained strength or praise from their lips because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. What you recognize, and we'll see this at greater length this evening, but what you recognize is the psalmist is meditating upon man, generally speaking, in one sense. He's speaking here about humanity in the abstract, but very specifically and concretely, he has in view those from whom God does have praise those who are not numbered among the enemies of God. These are his people. And what you find then, friend, here is that the psalmist's meditation is fixed on the glory of God displayed in the way in which he uses weak creatures. And more specifically, and we cannot miss this this evening, the psalmist is induced to worship as he reflects on the fact that though his people, God's people are so weak, as part of this lot of mankind, though they are so weak, yet victory is theirs. In other words, what you find in this psalm is that God's glory is seen in his people's victory. And very briefly, I want us to walk through the psalm as we see that theme provided for us. I want us to see, first of all, the impotence of men that is so described in this text. In verse 2, again, the descriptions are that of babes and sucklings. And what you and I are not supposed to see here is any kind of positive reference. Uh, The people of God here are, are, are set apart from the enemies of God, but are not called babes and sucklings to, to somehow channel their childlike faith. And now, as you see throughout the rest of the psalm, the emphasis here is on the smallness and on the weakness of men. And so in this text, you and I are supposed to see that this is a reference as well to their impotence. They are like babes and sucklings. In verses 3 and 4, he comes to describe mankind. He says, when I consider the heavens, he comes to that conclusion that comes in the form of a question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Again, as he looks at man, he sees smallness. He sees weakness. He sees impotence. And he marvels then, I want you to notice this, that though they are but babes and sucklings, yet God has ordained strength, as it is in our translation, praise, as it is in Matthew's Gospel. He has exercised a paternal care that has been mindful over men even though he is such a weak and small vessel. 
And I want you to notice in verse 5, the psalmist's meditation is quite striking here. He says that God has made man little lower than the angels. That is the proper translation. The word in the original is Elohim. But as the writer of the Hebrews reminds us, it is supposed to be taken as the angelic host. And again, you see the smallness of men. I want you to recognize, friend, that in this eighth psalm, man, and particularly the people of God as part of mankind, they're not considered in light of their sin. They're considered in light of that status they hold as creatures. This is so very crucial. When the psalmist thinks of men's impotence, he begins with his creatureliness. He takes us not to his post-lapsarian dimness and, and frailty, that is, the, the weakness that came upon man from the ravages of sin. No, the meditation of Psalm 8 looks at man's smallness as he is a creature. I want us to see that, friend, because what you recognize here is the psalmist is teaching us that as men, God's people are inherently weak. And this is supposed to be humbling. My friend, you recognize that in the second verse, he describes his people here as babes and sucklings, not as men, not as full-aged or full-grown people. He takes the, the lowest form of, of strength, the, the least of the self-sufficient stages of man's life, and he says, this is how, this is how God's people are. And friend, if you, if you talk to anyone who studies biology, they'll tell you, They'll tell you that the weakest creature that draws breath on the planet is an infant. A worm, a worm freshly hatched, is more likely to survive on its own than that of a child. A child, an infant, is one who is inherently weak. Smallest of creatures, least able to fend for itself. And friend, that's how the psalmist meditates on the inherent smallness and impotence of God's people. I want you to know, friend, that what we're referring to here again must be, re must be regarded as referring to man regardless of his moral condition. We are looking at man as he was created. And this is so staggering, friend, because in this eighth psalm then, you and I see a weakness, an impotence in man that Adam would have possessed, even in his state of innocency, even before the fall. Friend, what you and I have here described as Psalm 8 describes all of mankind regardless of sin. To illustrate this, friend, just allow me to remind you of what the words that you find there from the book of Job. There, you remember, Job is castigated by the Lord with these questions. He says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with doors when it, when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? 
when I made the cloud the garment thereof, and the thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and break it up from my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further. And here shall thy proud, thy proud waves be stayed. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, and caused the day spring to know his place? Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? You see, friend, though Job here, of course, is a sinner, the Lord deals with him as a man. And all of those questions could have been put to our first father in a state of innocence. Such is man, even as a creature. And friend, you notice even as you go through the book of Job that man is, even among the irrational creatures, he is weak. You remember how Job is reminded of the strength of behemoth and Leviathan. And man is small. Man is very small. And then we're told, more than that, that he was made lower than the angels. Friend, even among rational creatures, he is not the pinnacle. He holds, friend, a very median place. Yes, made in the image of God, but, but below the angels. In terms of strength, in terms of ability, even some of the irrational creatures dwarf him. Why is this so staggering? Well, friend, the psalmist has very palpably a firm grasp on the lowliness of man. He sees that men are weaker than many of the irrational creatures and dimmer than angels, regardless of sin, regardless of his moral condition. You know, friend, this is the kind of meditation that that I think we often bypass. When we think about our weakness and our humility, we often, I think, go immediately to our sin. And so we should go. But the first port of call, says the psalmist, is to recognize that even if, friend, even if we had never fallen, the psalm would be true of us. But his man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him, that could be asked of Adam. You remember how Elihu puts this directly to Job. In Job 35, he says to Job, If thou be righteous... What givest thou him, that is to God? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man. The sense is, friend, from man's smallness, what could he ever give God? What really could man ever do to advance or diminish God? And the answer, of course, is nothing. What you see here then, friend, is the Saith Psalm shows us an instinctive humility. He, the psalmist, looks upon man as dust. He looks upon him as weak, even at his best. And the application for you and I is very simple. Friend, if this is man, even in his state of innocence, 
if he can be so described as he is in this eighth psalm as weak and lowly and, and lower than, than the rational creatures above him and, and even weaker than the irrational, then how much more, friends, should this elicit humility from us when we contemplate our sin? Friend, this is a picture of biblical humility. It begins with our creatureliness and then it drives us even further when we contemplate our sinfulness. But that's our first point. That here you have a lively picture of man's impotence. But in setting contrast to that is that which he has by investment. That which he is invested in by God. Take the fifth verse. It's that contrast you see there. Man's weakness is set in contrast to the fact that God has crowned him with glory and honor. And in verse 6, he then tells us what he means by that. He says, dominion over the works of thy hands has been given to him, and and God has put all things under his feet. Now, friend, it's important for us to recognize what the psalmist is saying to us here. He's saying that man has received this despite his weakness, his relative smallness. And so the cause, friend, for all of this glory and this honor that has been given to man is of necessity only by God's free beneficence. And you actually see that emphasized in our psalm. Note just the pronouns. Thou art mindful. The Lord visits. He made it was over the works of the Lord's hands that Adam was placed, that men are placed. Older theologians would often speak to us about grace received before the fall. Uh, Adam was not, susceptible, was not capable of receiving mercy because mercy, mercy presupposes misery. But he could receive grace, and he did receive grace in the sense that he received unmerited favor. Friend, see man in the garden and in all the ways in which the lesser creatures were brought to be subservient to him. See man there, though he had earned nothing, made God's vicegerent on earth. He was bountifully dealt with. But then you notice the psalmist goes further. He tells us the extent of this dominion. He says, all things have been placed under his feet. As we'll see in just a moment's time, he's saying that the stronger and the weaker both are under his dominion. They're made subservient. What this text teaches us, friend, is that though man is so weak, he's been invested with nothing less than this crown of glory and honor. And what does that mean? Well, friend, to go back to the Garden of Eden, just just think for a moment what, what that would have entailed. Friend, in those moments, the lesser creatures were under a holy vicegerent. And as such, friend, what you have as you compare those texts in Genesis with what you have in Romans 8, what you recognize is the lesser creature did not groan under his rule. Under his reign, the idea of Romans 8 is that it was quite willing to, to yield itself, as it were, in obedience. The ground was not cursed. That which Adam set his hand to, it would, under the blessing of God, have prospered without the sweat of his brow. 
And that's the idea that's in view here. The lesser creature is subservient to man. And even more, as we'll see in a moment. But that brings us thirdly and finally to a question. The question is, why is this not a lament? Why is this a psalm of praise? Why the present tense? And that's a crucial question. It's a crucial question, and it's one that comes to us from the apostle himself. I mean, if you look just there at the sixth verse, there the psalmist says, Thou hast put all things under his feet. Friend, the curse that you and I encounter in Genesis 3 is a staggering, a staggering contrast to this statement. And so we ask again, why is this not a lament? Why are we not here lamenting that which man lost? Or maybe our other option is perhaps what you and I are given here is a distorted view of reality. In other words, all that we do is we emphasize that which is positive and forget that very painful and palpable mass that follows the curse. Maybe this is just ignoring the bad and only focusing on that which is good. Friend, the apostle answers for us that question, why this is not a lament in Hebrews 2. And I want you, as we close, just to turn with me back to that text. Hebrews chapter 2, and starting there at verse 6. Hebrews 2 in the sixth verse. And it says there, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Thus far the quotation from Psalm 8. But friend, this is, the, this is one of those moments where the scriptures come to us and show us how to read the scriptures aright. It's one of the most pastoral moments perhaps in the entirety of this epistle. Because then you find this, for in that he hath put all all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. And then the moment of reality. But now we see not yet all things put under him. That is man. Know what the apostle is doing. He looks at the 8th Psalm and he asks the very question that we ask. Why is this not a lament? Because as I look around me, I don't see what I am supposed to see apparently in this 8th Psalm. I don't see all things put in subjection under man. I see instead a creation that is groaning under Adam. Under all of his descendants that are cursed. I see instead lesser creatures that are subdued only by the sweat of man's brow. I see instead a world ravaged by the curse of Genesis 3. I do not see all things put under him. Friend, this is the moment where Psalm 8 is interpreted for us by the Holy Spirit. Note what follows in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Friend, do you know what he's saying here? He's saying, we're not here to be reflecting on Adam the first. 
No, if you're thinking rightly about this 8th Psalm and you recognize it's not a lament, it is praise, it can only be so through Adam the second. The only way, friend, this is not a lament or a distorted view of what's in front of us is through Jesus Christ. And it's at this point that I need to say, friend, that those scholars who tell us that the apostles here are just reading Jesus into the text, they've missed the plot entirely. The apostle is asking a very basic and existential question. How is it possible that the scriptures are saying these things about man? And he says the only way that these things can be true is if the apostle is, if here the psalmist is referring to what is restored through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not read into the text. Friend, Christ is the only one who makes sense of this text. What you see here, friend, is that it is his dominion that here the psalmist is speaking of. If you look back to verse 5 of Hebrews 2, you note that the apostle is saying there that he's talking about the world to come. He says that belongs to the all things there. All things, even the world to come, is under his rule and reign. But I want you to notice, friend, that as you go back to the 8th Psalm, he speaks of man, not in the singular, but as referring to mankind, to humanity. How are we to understand that? As we close, friend, what these things teach us is that in Christ, God's people are crowned with glory and dominion. Friend, there are so many texts that we could go to. But just see this for a moment in in very palpable ways from the Psalter itself. Take Psalm 91. There the Lord says of his people, Under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness. Note what he's saying there. The lesser creatures will not harm you. And then you come to the 8th of Romans and you find there that God's people are made more than conquerors over all things in Christ. Friend, our larger catechism very helpfully reminds us that Christ in His kingship subdues all things so that His people, those lesser creatures, are made subservient to their good. Friend, once perhaps... Well, not, not perhaps. Again, the 8th of Romans is very clear. The lesser creature groans under sinful man, waiting, longing for redemption, says the apostle. But in Christ, for his people, they become so many servants to their everlasting good. It's in Christ, friend, that that's possible. But even further, friend, you remember from 1 Corinthians 6, There the apostle says that that his people will judge angels. There most older, older commentators see that we're referring to the last judgment where God's people will concur with the judgment of God over the fallen angels. But note, friend, that that's in Christ. It is in Christ that they have all things put under their feet in that way. 
And so what we find here, friend, is what Adam, the first forfeit, Christ restores, he perfects, and he secures. Now as we close and apply this text to ourselves, the first question, the most basic question, I suppose, that we're met with is a question of humility. Friend, do you see your lowliness in the way that the psalmist sees it? Friend, do you see that even just as a creature of the dust, formed lower than the angels, it's a staggering thing that you could even name the name of our thrice holy God. That he would be so gracious and so kind to give you not only breath, but but even to place you in such a way as he has mankind. But can you go further than that, and can you see that, friend, on top of your lowliness as a creature, your sin, friend, your sin and mine has ravaged us and brought us further still into weakness and into dimness. And is that, friend, are those kinds of meditations instinctive to us? The psalmist, you recognize, has that kind of heart. And it induces him to praise. As we reflect on our our lowliness as a creature and then as a sinful creature, friend, the Psalter is showing us that that is really the only right disposition to approach God. If we're to be mindful of ourselves, he says here very pointedly, remember, remember your lowliness. But that's not all that he says. Because friend, as we've already demonstrated, this psalm only can be sung in praise and with thanksgiving through the Lord Jesus Christ. If there was no promise after the fall, if there was no Christ, friend, and the argument from Hebrews 2 is very clear, we would not see what there is described. So friend, do we praise our God, for the provision that he's made in Jesus Christ. Again, to restore that which Adam the first had lost. To lead us in this, we close with this thought. I want to read to you something from John Owen. Perhaps one of the most beautiful paragraphs he ever penned. He says there, Our nature, which was debased as low as hell by apostasy from God, is exalted in Christ above the whole creation. Our nature in the original constitution of it was crowned with honor and dignity. The image of God wherein it was made and the dominion over the lower world wherewith it was entrusted made it the seat of excellency of beauty and of glory. But of them all it was at once divested and made naked by sin. In this condition, lost, poor, base, cursed, the Lord Christ, the Son of God, found our nature. In infinite condescension and compassion, sanctifying a portion of it to himself, he took it to be his own, and wholly ineffable subsistence in his own person. And herein again the same nature, so depressed into the utmost misery, is exalted above the whole creation of God. And then he concludes, saying, this is that which is so celebrated by the psalmist, 
with the highest admiration in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 8. What there Owen is saying is precisely what the psalmist has been telling us this evening. Friend, the angels cannot call him brother. But his people can. Fallen angels will receive no benefit from the redemption of Christ. But his people, babes and sucklings as they are, a part of that mankind that was low from the beginning and made lower by sin, will reign with him. And because of him, And friend, the Apostle tells us that this, friend, is how you and I are to see this eighth psalm. And if all of that is true, then friend, you and I are to look at the works of God's providence as the psalmist does. To see that even now this Christ reigns and is making all things subservient to his people's good. And from those meditations to lead us to praise. This exhortation then, friend, is simply to exalt in Christ. To lay low before him. To live knowing that in Christ and only in him, all lesser and greater creatures are subservient to your good. And with the psalmist, friend, these meditations are to lead us to exalt our all-glorious and gracious God. Amen.